Hey, Dana. How are you? Hey, Jason. Welcome back to Cocktails at Table 7. We know where we are. We don't need to be welcome. Do we know where we are? Are you sure we know where we are? Because people might not. They might have pressed that button on accident, and there you go. They're like, where am I? Where am I? I thought I was at Radio Lab. What the hell is this show? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, that's that's funny. This week, we had a chance to talk with Daryl Roth, the Broadway producer, the namesake of the Daryl Roth Theater down in Union Square. And probably one of the most influential and prodigious theater producers of the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years. This woman is so active and so just nonstop. It makes us all feel slightly insecure about what we're doing in our lives. (laughs) And the cool thing that you'll find out in the interview is that she didn't start doing this, you know, right out of college. So that makes it I don't know, even the more interesting to me is her sort of second career, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. She wasn't, you know, she was into her 40s before we started. So there's still time, Dana. If if we want to get shit going on. I know. We got it. (laughs) We got it. We got it. So 12 Tony Awards and over 120 Broadway and off-Broadway productions, Kinky Boots, Wit. Carolina Change. Carolina Change. If you really want to know what she's done, we would spend 10 minutes. Just listing her credits, yeah. Just listing her (laughs) credits. So take our word for it. This woman is a force of nature, a force of theater, a driving force of the New York theater, especially. And we're very lucky that she agreed to sit down with us and she was super nice she was super swell we loved chatting with her and she had some amazing insights into where we've been and where we're going and she is on the forefront of trying to reopen after the pandemic she'll have one of the first shows that's reopening you'll you'll learn about blindness which is down at the daryl roth theater in union square and it's a sort of experiential show it's not we had a really hard time saying that word during the interview, right, too. <laughs> experiential. Experiential. Uh, um, I edited that out, but uh, <laughs> just trust us there. We, nobody could say that word. No one could say it. But it's not your typical, you know, theater, Broadway, Broadway show. It's, But she'll tell you all about it during the interview. I don't need to tell you now. But it, it sounds really interesting and, and a nice way to ease into going back to arts and theater experiences. In my opinion. Exactly. I, I brought it up with a friend of mine, and we're both on board, and we want to go. Uh, but just a little bit of news since our last podcast. Some big um, stuff is happening around here. Yes. Since we talked to Judy Kay last week, we didn't know the broadcast date of Diana, but now we do. October 1st on Netflix with plans to opening the show up on Broadway in the middle of December. That's very exciting. That's getting us back on track for something. And the mayor de Blasio has announced vaccinations for Broadway for theater workers and also for anyone 30 and over right now, right? So it's special Broadway, getting some of the theater workers back to work to running those stations for vaccination, if I if I remember correctly, right, Jason? Yeah, 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 yeah. Everybody over the age of 30 now is eligible, starting in about two weeks, everybody above the age of 16. So yeah, things are looking up. You know, it's all moving us forward. Things are looking 
looking brighter. We have some opening dates coming up. And oh, and Sean is around. He's just on a little spring break vacay with his uh, family. So he's not here chatting with Jason and I today. <laughs> no, he's living it up on the coast. We're, we're, uh, <laughs> I am, I'm having a little sip. There's a little, little scotch going on over there, I think. Huh? A little whiskey. Anyway, today we've got Daryl Roth. We think you're going to love her. If you don't already know her, you're going to fall in love with her. You know her shows. And what a cool way for us to end Women's History Month, um, I think, with someone who really has contributed to the history of Broadway. Extraordinarily so. Here you go with some Daryl Roth. On. On. Oh, wait, where are we? Where are we, Jason? We're at, oh, uh, Cocktails at Table 7. This is Radiolab. <laughs> Welcome to Cocktails at Table 7, inside New York's Joe Allen. In May of 1965, Joe Allen began life as a cozy neighborhood bar and restaurant in New York City's Hell's Kitchen. Located just a few blocks from Broadway, Joe's quickly developed a highly loyal clientele of young performers, writers, and creative types. The food was great, the drinks were stiff, and the fabled flop wall celebrating Broadway's most notorious bombs gave the room an added touch of insider charm. Over the decades, Joe Allen grew into a New York institution, and on this podcast, we'll celebrate Joe's history with longtime regulars who know it best. We'll hear from actors, producers, writers, musicians, neighbors, and friends who will share with us just what makes Joe Allen the place to be. So here's to old friends, new friends, and cocktails at Table 7. We may not get to everything, but we, we, we are definitely curious in getting your point of view because we've been talking to a lot of creative people and performers, writers, and also people who formerly worked at the restaurants who've gone on to work in the theater. But we haven't gotten the producer viewpoint as much. I had a question right off the bat was when the theaters closed in March of 2020, did you get a sense immediately that that was something that was going to be a long haul or did that seem more like... Uh, hopefully this won't be such a drawn out thing. Yeah, definitely the latter. For me, I had no idea. I don't think anyone did that it would be a year. I mean, I think we were feeling maybe a couple of weeks. If we thought anything differently, we would have packed up our things. You know, we would have watered our plants. I don't know. We would have taken some time to really think about the fact that, you know, as if you were going on a vacation, what you would do to kind of close up shop for a while. No, I, I had no idea that it would turn into such a very long, unfortunate intermission. No, I had the same sense. I was looking at some text messages between myself and the other managers at Orso. And we were talking in terms of how do we get everybody to be all right for three weeks without work, right. four weeks without work. Exactly. Maybe a month. That's what we were yeah, thinking. Precisely. Interesting that you had the same. Yeah. Yeah, we did. We did, sadly. And the saddest part of all of that, and I'm sure you felt this even more so, was having to furlough people and not realizing that that would be such a long time for them. You know, I felt horrible having to do it at all, but thinking that it wouldn't be for that long and they would be back soon, you know, kind of softened the sadness of it all. But then that turned out to be just awful. Yeah. What what started as a two-week or three-week or month-long interruption that has just gone on and on and on. I mean, at, at what point did you know that this was going to go on longer than three weeks or four weeks? Did you hear stuff before other people did or were you 
looking into a crystal ball? Did you just have a bad feeling or, or what was it? Well, I did have a bad feeling because I have a number of friends who are physicians and I was in touch with them to say, as you would watch the news and see the numbers go up, and of course, everything was on the news was so frightening. I, I was in touch with them as friends, first of all, to say, you know, what are you seeing? What's happening at New York Hospital? What's happening at Mount Sinai? What are you seeing? And as the weeks went on, the reports were getting worse and worse, not better and better, worse and worse. More people were being brought into the emergency rooms. People were coming in with ailments that were beyond belief. The people that you know couldn't breathe and went on ventilators. I mean, that I guess in the beginning we thought, okay, maybe it's just a really bad flu. Those of us that are non-medical people. But then speaking to these friends of ours and hearing the truth of what was going on, I think is when I realized, okay, this is really something scary, and it's not going to be over very soon. And it's escalating, not de-escalating. So I felt somewhat more prepared and certainly a hundred times more anxious. I mean, as an anxious person anyway, this was <laughs> not helpful. <laughs> yes. And the only moment that I've had of a little bit of relief, you know, that the black cloud is leaving our heads is when I was vaccinated. Mm -hmm. I have to say for this entire year, I, not alone, I know everybody, you know, is feeling the same kind of doom and gloom. It was the first moment that I felt hopeful. Yeah, I had that same feeling as well. Yeah. It, it was, they, they stuck it in, I came home and I took a nap and I slept so deeply and was so joyful yes. talking to the woman who was registering. Exactly. Me. And she was happy to give it to me and I was happy to be there. I know. And everybody was thrilled and it just felt like a, like a really great birthday. Exactly. I know that that was it. So, you know, that took a year to get to that moment in time for many of us. And still there are those that are not, yet vaccinated. I think it will be opened up very quickly now. You know, it was like hen's teeth in the beginning. You were just, I mean, fortunately I was old, so I was in an early group. <laughs> My family's gotten it and I was able to get the first dose and it's, it's feels like we're moving through to another phase. And so now there's this awareness of, oh, we might actually get up and running again. And I'm sure that's happening throughout your community as well as a producer. Correct. You are one of the first people who is making that that leap with uh, blindness. Yeah. Well, I've been very fortunate because of the flex space that we have on 15th Street. You know, our theater is actually a wonderful big open space. So we were allowed to get the city and state approvals to do this piece that, you know, blindness that we talked about because we're not a theater that has set seats. So we were not in a worrisome position of how we could bring people in safely. So the way we've done it is, well, I don't know if you want to talk about this yet. I don't mean to be jumping ahead. Oh, go, go for it. Go for it. No, I'd love to hear about it because it's a, you're sort of a, you're, you're entering into sort of a new, a new world of producing. So we'd love to hear about the show. Absolutely. Well, the beauty of it is basically the space. That's what allowed us to be able to do it. So stepping back to the beginning of the blindness journey, as I call it, I read a review about it when it was at the Dunmar Warehouse nearly a year ago. They had done it during the pandemic and they were able to do it because the main event is there are no actors. There are no actors in it. So there is nothing to worry about in terms of the backstage, uh, you know, geography and traveling of people and people being in close contact. And so the piece itself, just to say what it is, it's based on a beautiful book by Jose Saramago and it is told to us in the audience 
through earphones and the voice of Juliet Stevenson tells the story while we're experiencing a beautiful light and sound surrounding. And so when I read about it, I thought to myself, I could do this in my space because we can set up the pods. They, people sit in pods of two. So you come with someone that's in your bubble or that you're comfortable with that you know is you know healthy and you're not sitting close to the other pods. They're six feet, sometimes seven feet apart from one another. Every protocol that has been directed, it has been taken care of. We have new air filtration in the theater. Everyone has a mask on. Everyone's temperature is being taken. They're asked those questions that you're asked, you know, about have you traveled? Have you been in contact, et cetera. Everything is sanitized in between shows. Everything will be sanitized. And people have the ability in this space of ours, which was another lucky thing, to come in one door and exit another. So there will be no you know, not, not gathering in a lobby, not crossing one another's paths. So we think it will be as safe as we can possibly make it. And we're also only having uh, 86 people in the space. So it's not like you're sitting in a theater of 2000, which I don't think will happen until the fall. So the Dunmar Warehouse production is pretty much what this is. Um, having read about it and, and, you know, spoke to everyone in in London, they told us how it was done and we're using their entire original team. And so I feel that it will be a very exciting opportunity for people to start gathering and to, you know, have that beautiful thing that theater does, which is gather together for storytelling. And I, I think people will hopefully feel safe because they are and the protocols are all observed. And I think that it will just be a way to kick the doors open. You know, it's, it's a beginning. It's just a beginning. And I know that it's not going to be for everyone because everyone has their own comfort level of when they want to come together. I get that. And if anyone's uncomfortable, they should not come. But there are people I know going to restaurants, getting their hair done, you know, uh, going into shops more than they ever have. And I think that is due in large part to people being vaccinated. So we're really hopeful that it will be a beginning. And the piece is beautiful. I mean, it's terrifying, but it's of the time. I don't know if you know the story, but it's about an epidemic in an area that uh, people become blind. And then it's what happens when a community comes together in a crisis. What could be more timely than that? But uh, it has nothing to do with this pandemic. It was written long before. It just felt that the story, which ends up being so hopeful and how people can be so resilient and face you know, something that is difficult, challenging. Uh, and I'm hopeful that people will come and enjoy the experience of just being together in a theater space. And, um, you know, it will just be one of the first things to open. So we, we certainly pray that everything goes smoothly. It sounds important on many levels. How does what you're doing with that helping you play into opening a big Broadway house that seats 2,000 people and shows with actors and all the crew and all of those things that make up one of the big Broadway shows? Well, I think we need more people being vaccinated and everybody has to be comfortable coming together. And, you know, the actors need to be protected. The entire company, the crew, everyone has to feel protected. And that will happen, but I don't think it will happen for quite some months. You know, we need the herd immunity. And I'm sure that Broadway will open in a healthy way. I'm thinking it's fall. 
you know, I listen to Dr. Fauci, whatever yes. he says, I'm with. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's our guy. He just actually did a press conference. Was it today? Or there was a there was something I read on Playbill about how he said today he thinks it'll be safe in the fall yeah. to a certain extent. Everyone has their own level of comfort, as I said. So there'll be some people that won't be ready to come to theater for a while. And there'll be some people that, you know, will be charging the doors to get in. So I think, and everything in the middle. I know how much theater means to all of us. Just thinking over time, that's what gets people back to feeling to feeling hopeful. It's the beauty of theater and music and art. Um, it just can lift our spirits. And God knows everybody needs that right now. And I think the other thing is, it like feeds our soul. And we've been without that. We've been without that for this year. And, and so I think people will be coming back in their own time. But I'm quite optimistic. Oh, I'm getting all teary-eyed over here. <laughs> yeah, we are too. Yeah. I think you answered one of our biggest questions there, which is why is it important that Broadway or the American theater and the American theater continue in any form? Um, and I think you've answered it, you know, one great answer right there, but is there another answer? Well, that's, to- my, that's, my, that's my personal and emotional answer. But you know, the other answer, which is really as important, it's it's going to bring our economy back. The economics of Broadway are huge. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to bring our economy back when we think about it. I mean, just us right now speaking. Theater opens, the restaurants open, the shops open, the people come again to our to our livelihoods, and it brings it all back. And I think that aside from rebuilding our spirit, it can rebuild our city and every city that there is theater, and it does help the economy immensely. I mean, we know it's like $80 billion comes into this city thanks to theater. Oh yeah. Broadway, Broadway brings in more money, I think, than all the sports teams in the area combined. Correct. People don't realize just how big an industry it is. Correct. Yeah. Well, it also then that you think about in addition to the restaurants, like occupancy in the hotels. And, That's right. Mm-hmm. So as for whether or not we're going to have giant mega events within thousands and thousands of attendees, that's still probably a ways away. But by just opening the door to it, the, the, the flow of people back into the city is going to be a huge, it's just going to be a huge boon to us. Well, I think the tourism part of it is a big part of it. And I think that will happen over time. My feeling is that the first people to come to theater will be, you know, our tri-state area folks. I don't think that tourism is going to come back immediately. I think it will begin as more people are more comfortable traveling. But I think we have to focus in the beginning on those people that are closer to us and in any regional area. You know, if you want to see something in Chicago, I think first you're going to talk to the people that live in that area. But it will happen. It will happen. Does that idea play into right now how you are looking at picking projects like in within the next year or two, the idea of what would attract a more local audience as opposed to tourist from other places audience, or is it all kind of the same? Um, Not for me, not for me. I think the things that I'm working on that were in development or had been halted because of being closed. No, I'm not changing what I'm interested in doing. Some people may be, but no, you know, I have to still trust my instincts about what I want to produce. And the thing that probably will change, perhaps, and this might affect off-Broadway, maybe more, I think some of the stories might be smaller stories, perhaps easier to produce, maybe less expensive to produce. But I think Broadway will come back, you know, roaring. You know, uh, people can't wait to go see the Music Man with Hugh Jackman. I mean, you know, it's 
It's like the light at the end of the tunnel, for example. And I, I think for me personally, no, nothing will change. I'm still looking for the stories that I want to tell and the shows that I feel feel that I want to get behind. We've been talking to women all month since it's Women's History Month. Yes. So to that, what brought you to producing? To be frank, it's a, a field where it was predominantly men. And we're really interested in what your journey was to becoming a producer. So I started a little bit later in life to find my career path. I was in my 40s when I started producing. And um, growing up in New Jersey, I was fortunate enough to have parents who loved Broadway and they took my sister and myself to see lots of good things. And so I always loved theater. And as I got a little older, I started reading plays. In fact, I love reading plays much more than I like reading books half the time. I always think I'm like in the conversation, you know, and I've loved that. Um, You know, I went to college. I was actually an art history major. Theater as a career was not on my radar. I mean, I wasn't prepared to be an actress or a director or a writer. Those were not my talents. But as life went on and I raised my family, I realized that one of my strengths in all humility is that I'm pretty good at putting things together. And in its simplest form, being a producer is putting it all together. And I wanted to get involved in theater. I wasn't quite sure how to find my way, but I was lucky enough to be asked to be on the board of City Center many years ago. This is now 32 years ago. And at the time, they were just forming a committee to explore how to do musicals that maybe didn't get their due. It became what is Encores. The Encores series was the beginning. And I was on the board at that time and I was on that committee and I met Richard Maltby, who was the professional, you know, helping guide them through this process. And we really um, had a great bond. And one night, many months later, he invited me to come see a little musical review that he and his partner, David Shire, had written at a club in the village called 88s, which sadly is not there anymore. But it was 88s as in 88 piano keys. I love that. (laughs) And it was closer than ever. And it was something that just, I don't know, I sat there listening to these wonderful songs and I... I turned to them at the end of the evening, and I've often said this to people, I don't know whose voice came out of my body, but I said, could I produce this? I think this is wonderful. Every song was talking to me at my stage in life where I was. It was about, you know, raising your family. It was about relationships with your husband. It was role reversals when you end up taking care of your parents. It was going through life's travails. And I just said, this is so beautiful. And they looked at me like, well, give it a try. And uh, I guess nobody else was knocking on the door. So they said, let's let her try. And with the luck of, I don't know what, I was able to get up to Williamstown that summer. I had seen it in the spring. And this is how sometimes things are just shared, meant to be. Williamstown had a show that had fallen out of their little space and they were actually looking for something. And they knew Richard and David's work, of course. They didn't know who I was at all, but they were thrilled to have it. And we went up that summer. It was the summer of 1988, and we developed it. And at the time that I saw it at 88, it was just a bunch of songs. It wasn't really with a structure. And so we did that, and and then I brought it to the Cherry Lane, and it ran for nine months. And I like to say that was the birth of my baby, because (laughs) it was nine months, and it was the first thing I ever produced. (laughs) So that's how I started. And the nice postscript to that is Closer Than Ever has 
you know, it celebrated its 25th anniversary. It's now 30 years later. And people still do the songs. In fact, one of my friends who's a casting agent said that the show that most people choose to show their range and to show their uh, talent is songs from Closer Than Ever, because each song is like a story, you know, Mm -hmm. and it can show, you know, the artist can show a lot of emotion. And so that was my beginning. It was wonderful because when I went up to Williamstown, I My son, Jordan, came with me. He was just a little kid at the time. And the beauty of that was that we started sharing all of this theater together. And of course, now he's, you know, theater mogul number one. And I am so (laughs) proud of him. And he he just, you know, it's sort of a journey that we took together. And that Mm -hmm. was great. You've produced off-Broadway and you've produced on-Broadway. And the difference, I imagine, other than scope is, what is the difference other than scope? Well, okay, economics is a big difference. I did produce, by the way, off-Broadway for most of my career until uh, actually the very first Broadway production is probably what brought us to this conversation because it was Nick and Nora. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I love off-Broadway because it was a way it was a way to tell stories in a more intimate setting. And you could take risks in a different way, financially and otherwise. The material itself could be riskier. Um, I remember when, when I did Wit, you know, I mean, there was no way we were getting a Broadway theater as much as I wanted to. No way. And yet it just ran and ran and ran. It was off Broadway. And I don't think people really felt that there was such a delineation between Broadway and off Broadway in those days. You could go see a good play and geographically, wherever it was, it was. You Did know. you see Dana has the program right there? Oh, look at that. This is my program from WIT. I have saved basically every program of every show I've ever seen. Oh, that's so funny. Me too. I have many of (laughs) yours. But this is one of the plays that really, um, my uncle took me to see it when I was a freshman in college, I believe. I was a theater acting major. And I saw this play and I was like, this changed my, I mean, I was a musical kid. I grew up in New York. You know, my parents took me to Broadway. I was really lucky. But like seeing this at that time in my life made such an impression about what theater and what acting could be. Watching Judith Light perform this role was made a huge impression on me as a as an artist. So thank you for that. So happy to hear you say that on so many levels. It really does. It warms my heart because that was a labor of love. And when people ask me about, well, how did you think anybody would come to see this play? It's about a woman dying of cancer. And you know that in the first beat, right? If you remember the play. And I said, because the way it's written, the humanity and the intelligence, and of course, the acting of Kathy Chalfant before Judith Light came in, by the way, it was so moving. And you're right to say this. It was a masterclass in acting for sure. And the way it was directed, I mean, everything about it was theater at its finest. And I said in the beginning, because it, it came from MCC, it was a nonprofit play that I had, actually, I'd known about it before its first production, but having seen it, I knew that I wanted to move it. And people said, well, you're crazy. This is like not commercial at all, which sort of has been the interesting part about my career. I don't think about what's commercial. And then you can have these wonderful surprises. Wit is the perfect example. Perfect example. And when you were saying that plays, you know, you're drawn to plays, to reading plays, and to, you've produced some risky plays on Broadway. I yeah. mean, I know that the, the goat was written by Edward Albee, but it's a it's a <laughs> wild yeah. premise, and there's 
a lot of diversity in the authors that you've produced. Uh, you did Anne in the Tropics, and then you did, um, it was written by Tony Kushner, but Caroline or Change was sort of a politically charged piece in it. Yes, it was. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's clear in the things that you've, there's a mixture of things that are a little more um, maybe they seem like they'd, they'd appeal to a larger audience, but then there's stuff in there. Like we were talking about quorum boy. Oh my God. That was an odd one, which I also have the program for. <laughs> I love you. I love that you do. We were able to see that we were given tickets at the restaurant um, when it was in previews and we were all so moved by that piece. We thought that was just an amazing piece. It was. And it was, it was such an undertaking also because the subject matter was grim and it was huge it was an expensive play, but I thought it was a beautiful story, but it was such a beautiful story. And, you know, to me, it's all about the storytelling and choosing things has to do with, are you telling a story of a new voice, you know, from a new voice? Because I love emerging writers. And that, that was actually the beginning of my career in Off-Broadway, being able to, you know, give the opportunity to new writers, which you can do Off-Broadway a lot more easily than you can on Broadway. And to me, that was a great gift to be able to find these writers that I could help. You know, I've said this, that I think another another definition of a producer, or at least as I see it, is being the facilitator of other people's dreams. And you can do that for a new writer or a new actor, you know, someone who's, I don't know, giving a chance. It's, it's so exciting to me. Anyway, it's very fulfilling. But Corum Boy is an example of a big, big story that could only be done on Broadway. Just physically, it couldn't have been done on Broadway. And of course, it wasn't commercially successful, but so many good plays just aren't, you know, and that can't be the, your only guideline. I mean, I want to be fiscally responsible. I don't want to sound as though I'm shirking my responsibility as a producer. But I think if you go into something thinking that it's going to be commercial, that's a mistake. You have to go into it knowing that it's good and that you're passionate about it and then you want to support it and you will have success. I like to say theater deals in a different currency. And sometimes it's not the money reward. There's so many other things that make a success, I feel. When you're working with the new writers, I mean, do you work closely with them? on a personal level, helping them develop their pieces? Or do you bring in the people to help with the, the development? Well, I'm not trained as a dramaturg, but I am trained as an audience member. <laughs> <laughs> That's very important. Yeah. I think so. You know, I think it's a bit of common sense in a way. I treat the relationships with the creative teams very delicately. And I hope that I have found a good balance because I feel that people need to be able to work at their own time and in their own way. And I feel that a collaboration is important. And I want someone that I'm working with to know that I'm there for them as a sounding board. I don't want to impose myself and especially not too early in the process. You know, and it's different with each with each situation because, well, let's say if it's an original piece of material like Kinky Boots, which, you know, started from ground zero. We really were involved in the creation of it in a way, but I would never impose myself on Harvey writing a book. But each time we got together for a table read, you know, everyone was open and welcome to people's ideas because it was a brand new thing. Something where I may have seen a play in a nonprofit theater and it's already formed. Then my comments would be more about the staging of it, you know, mm -hmm. moving it to a different theater, the physicality or, you know, upgrading costumes or things that have to do with production values. I want to be involved. Actually, it's my favorite part is, you know, to be involved with the creative team, because that's what makes me feel close to the process. It's enough that I have to advertise and market and sell the show, but the joy, of, and that's not the joy of it for me. That's the necessity of theater. But the joy of it for me is actually, you know, being with the creative people, because that makes me feel that 
my being able to help it happen has the value. But it's different with every case. It's really different. And some people don't want opinions at all. And you have to honor that. I mean, Edward Albee is the perfect example. You mentioned the goat. I mean, quite honestly, he wouldn't let you change a comma. That's what we like to say. Liz McCann and I, who produced his six plays, actually, starting with Three Tall Women. I remember with The Goat, which was, by the way, one of the few shows we've done that did not start out of town, did not have a production that anybody could see because we were worried that people would start talking about it in a way that would not yeah, help. that the word would get out. You have to be there and it has to unfold in front of you. Correct. I mean, you have to experience that play and not be told that it's about bestiality because you'll walk in and it will have to win you over. Whereas when you sit down for the first time and it happens, it just happens organically. It's a beautiful, magnificent play about so much more. I remember sitting in the theater during rehearsals and I mean, I didn't want to say anything about anything because Edward is genius, but I had some problem with some of the physical stuff, some of the costumes that Mercedes was wearing. And I very timidly said something. He turned around and he looked at me and he stared at me. I was like nervous. And he said, you're right. (laughs) And him saying, you're right. I thought, I mean, it was the smallest little thing. Believe me, it was no big deal. But we did change the costume. And then there was a part about bringing, dragging in the dead, bloody goat, if you remember. And I couldn't bear that. I said, that's going to take people right out of the play, the way it was staged at the time. And we were able to adjust that mildly, you know. So that's the extreme, where I would not presume to tell Edward anything at all about his playwriting, of course. But the other extreme is with a new writer who's actually hungry for your input and hungry for your response. Because, as I said, I could represent an audience. That's great. That's a great point of view. That is such a necessary point of view. You can say that I'm listening to this and this is landing, but this isn't. And I'm a little confused about maybe how, but without it being. But not critical, not critical in that way, but rather, you know, I'm not getting that, or maybe this is a better way we can talk about it. And that's great for me. You know, I enjoy that part of it very much. So I love the idea of being helpful. People think producing is just going to find the money and calling it a day. Well, it's not. I mean, it's not for me. It is for some who really enjoy that part of it. I think going back to being a woman in the business, one of the things that was very hard for me, and I think it's of my generation, it was very hard to ask other people for money. You know, that just wasn't a thing that was talked about as a woman growing up in my generation. You didn't sit around the dinner table and talk about things having to do with money. And that was hard. That was a challenge for me. I have to say that was one of the hardest things. It still is, to tell you the truth. Sometimes I pretend I'm somebody else when I ask for money. I like play a role. (laughs) It is, but it's also a very important lesson to learn that, you know, there are people who want to give you money or who want to invest or who want to go on this journey with you or just help new talent out. And and finding those angels is very important. Oh, it's true. And there are people that want to help. And and there are people that want to put their, you know, start with their toe in the water in a little bit. And then you develop those investors and they ultimately you know, if they have a good time and if they've had some success with you, you know, they become your co-producers in the next one or something. But no, I do love that. But it was hard. I have to say that was one of the hard things. And the other hard thing for me in the beginning was that, you know, people just thought I was a dilettante, you know, some lady from New Jersey and who the hell does she think she is? And, um, and that's okay. One thing I did learn is that you can't listen to all that noise. You know, once you commit yourself to doing something that you really feel you can accomplish, or at least want to try, you can't be distracted by all that. I mean, that's just unhealthy. Is there any advice that you would give to an aspiring producer? 
how to get involved or what to watch out for other than, you know, find something that you believe in and work hard to get it up on a stage? Well, I think you have to trust your instincts that you're onto something that you really believe in. Whatever your taste is, everybody has different tastes and different things they want to pursue. Uh, so believe in yourself and sort of feel your own confidence because depending on other people can be tricky. You know, you've got to really believe in yourself and listen to other people's advice. Certainly, I'm not saying that, but you've got to be kind of strong willed in a way, you know, in a, in a graceful way, let me say. But you have to be passionate about what you're choosing to do. Trust your gut. Surround yourself with people that you are confident are there for your best interests and the best interests of the piece. Um, I've had experiences that taught me that you really have to share the vision and you have to know your skill set and what you, what you do well and what you do less well. Now, I know that my skill set leans towards being a creative producer less than being a person who is financially astute. And so for me, that means always having a great general manager as a partner working with me right from day one, because, you know, I'm not great at the budgets. I'm just, that's just not my way of thinking. And so I think an important piece of advice might be to surround yourself with those that uh, fill in what you're not as good at and have that dialogue in a way that your strengths are strong and, and their strengths are strong and together as a whole you know, you're really a good team. I mean, I know what I'm good at and I know what I'm not good at. And so you need to find those partnerships. I think that's important. And um, my other piece of advice is to never give up because sometimes it takes years and years to get something to happen. So you must be tenacious. That's the word. You've got to be tenacious. You know, it's not for the faint of heart, especially if you start something from the beginning. Uh, it could take years. Kinky Boots took six years to develop really from the moment of getting the option for it. And so I think those are some of my words of advice. And, and also when it comes to finding co-producers, find people that are willing to work with you and not just write a check. You need the check writers, but you also need the people that are willing to roll up their sleeves and help you get the word out, help with marketing, you know, help bring people into the theater, the worker bees. They'll probably be willing to go further than someone who's just there to go further emotionally and support wise in terms of not just write a check and let's see how this goes. It's like, I really want to see this happen. I, know, I could, I, I think as I answer your question, which is such a good question. There's so many other things that come to mind, you know, like being able to find the people to invest in the show that you feel will have a particular personal interest in the material. I think once people are more invested in the material and the story that it's telling, I think that that produces a very good mix uh, going forward, like with The Normal Heart, for example which was, I think, one of the most beautiful revivals. It was important for me to have people that were really interested in that era, in the AIDS crisis, in gender politics. It was important for me to have people on the producing team that really understood why this was an important story to tell 20 years later, 25 years later, actually. And I try to think about that, you know, like within Decent, which kind of incorporates all the things I'm interested in, which is gender politics, Jewish heritage, great storytelling, art as being a necessity in life. You know, I found people to invest that really loved what the story was about. And um, I don't know, I think that's sort of the precious gift of finding people to support your work that actually believe in what the story is. You know, they believe in what you're trying to do. And the other good part of it is if it doesn't return its investment, I have never had anyone say, I'm sorry I did that, because the satisfaction comes in different ways. So if you're invested in it emotionally and financially, 
then you just want to be there for the work. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it's the different currency of theater that you were speaking up before. Correct. Exactly. Not that I don't want to make money. Don't get me wrong. I sound like I'm a nonprofit theater. <laughs> Which, if you ask my husband, he'll say I am. Let's just say I'm looking at all your credits. There's a balance between the two very clearly because you like to put on a, a show too. Sometimes shows that are kinky, kinky boots while being a show that has definite point of view and an important point of view is a crowd pleaser as well. So you sort of, that's a, that's a, that's a great combo of the two. I think so. I'm glad you said that because I always felt, you know, you could put glitter and glam around a big, wide, open heart, which is what Kinky Boots is. Yeah. Are you surprised at what a big hit that show's been? No, <laughs> I'm not. I believed in it from the moment. I thought it would be a big hit. We had some challenges in the beginning. Like many people said, we should change the title. It sounds like a porno show or something, you know, and everybody had a different opinion about that. And there were challenges about it's not good for families. Well, it turned out that it was great for families. We had so many wonderful letters about people that found confidence and strength to tell their families they were gay, for example. I mean, what what kind of can do that? That's great. That's great. And it was very joyous and very hopeful. And, you know, by the end of the story, it was really about accepting yourself, accepting other people. The messages were fabulous. I always believed it would be big hit. And we like the title because we could just say that people are coming from kinky and we know exactly what's going on. At the restaurant, <laughs> we just write that down. Post kinky, from well, kinky. And I was so happy you were a block away. Yeah, that was a great, that was a, that was great. Also because of Jane Berger, who's one of our regulars. And I know how pleased she was to ha- be involved in a show that was reached such a big audience and people loved it so much. And they you know, it's touring. I mean, was it was it still touring when the pandemic happened? Yeah. Or yeah, I mean, that's a long run. I know. Well, and Jane's a good example of the person that I mentioned who can be invested emotionally as well as financially. Uh, you know, and and I love finding co-producers that have the same the same feeling about the piece. Jane is a good example. In fact, she's one of our co-producers on blindness. So I'm happy that she is too, because I mean, we don't know how this is going to work because of all the exterior issues not having anything to do with the very presentation, but just having to do with life as it is. But we put a wonderful team together who really believed in the story, but also believed in, you know, trying to do something to get us up and running again, you know, just to show that we're going to try and get the doors open. You know, somebody has to start, somebody has to try. So I'm taking my page out of the Dunmar warehouse because that's what they did. And it worked for them. So I'm praying, I'm praying that it works for us. We hope so too. Thank you. And I, I, I do believe that there are people who are really hungry to be in the theater again. So you're going to definitely see see them. I hope so. Well, that we only need 86 people to show. I think you could do that. Mm-hmm. It should be doable. I mean, if I can't do that, I might as well retire. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to ask you the question, which is, were you a Joe Allen person? Um, because we know you from Orso. We've all worked at Orso for a long time. I'm really an Orso gal. Honestly, I have to tell you, I, I of course went to Joe Allen's often enough. And I would usually go if somebody wanted to go to Joe Allen's or someone's, you know, or there was a, a meal meeting at Joe Allen's, you know, in the in nice round table in the back. So yes, of course. But no, I, I have to say, honestly, I was an Orso person. I love Orso. I would love Orso with or without Joe Allen's. I mean, I just really... I always felt comfortable there. I loved all of you. I felt that I was in in theater land, you know, surrounded by people that cared about the theater. I loved going to dinner there and seeing people come in with their playbills, you know, on the table. I was always curious, like, oh, what did you see? How did you like it? Blah, blah, blah. Of course, nothing made me happier than to walk in and see strangers with their kinky boots playbill. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That always made me feel great. 
And I just felt comfortable. You all made us feel comfortable. And as you asked for a memory, I do have a good memory. I don't know if you remember this, but one night we went after Kinky Boots and it was just my husband, Stephen, and myself. And it was my birthday and he, he had a birthday cake arranged. And it was such a big birthday cake. I don't know if you remember that, but we gave a slice to everybody around us in the restaurant. And it just felt so good and celebratory. I didn't even know these people. And I didn't care that I didn't know them because I think the beauty of of Orso's for me is that when you walked in, you sort of felt like you were with people that you knew because everybody loved theater. That's enough. I think also, even if you aren't a person and you work at Orso and you don't know the theater intimately, or you aren't a writer, or you aren't an actor, you have a love of the neighborhood, of the community, of the experience. So it's like, eh, you're kind of grandfathered into it if you're Correct. in Orso. You're you're in the theater that's it. to some extent. Yeah. yeah. You're in the community. And I think that's right. The one thing I was going to mention to you, though, I never went to Bar Centrale without somebody taking me. I never went by myself. And I would only go if somebody sort of famous celebrity took me. I never felt that comfort zone there, but also the best. Yeah. I think we find people, it's interesting. The more people we talk to, there are some people who there's one place that definitely takes precedence over the others. Almost everybody though, has one place that they will, that they will go to if given the choice. Like I, this is where I want to be, but, but some people move between them and some people just, I just go to Orso. I just go to Joe Allen. Just go to BC. There's a lot of people that just are Bar Centrale. I think more people that work in the industry, actor-wise, go to Bar Centrale because maybe it's more of a late night. Would that be true, do you think? After show? I don't know. Post-theater, maybe, they're the vibe. I mean, nothing is all that late anymore. We've talked to a lot of people about late-night culture has changed a lot, even before the pandemic. The nights were ending earlier for all of the places. Well, there's a big movement to have more shows open and start at 7. Mm-hmm. I love it. I mean, I would so prefer that. I don't know what it does to the restaurant business. Does that bother a before and after meal? Or what does it do, do you think? Am I in... My Baitre D point of view from Orso was that it made the early part of the night much tougher because instead of everybody rolling in at 5.45 and 6, they're banging on the door at 5 o'clock to get in there. (laughs) But that was fine because of the way the kitchen worked and the way that we were set up. We were designed for that. And we we got into that groove quickly. I think it made post-theater a lot more appetizing for our regulars because- 9.30 dinner is different than a 10.30 dinner. A lot of the neighborhood people would come at that time. And also we can do seven o'clock business, which we could never do. So we could actually do like people walking through the neighborhood in the neighborhood that want to have a dinner in two hours can come at seven and be gone in time for the post theater. So I, I think it's great. I mean, I think it ended up shaking down to being very positive. I actually myself remember coming into Orso after meeting somebody like friends would want to go see Kinky Boots and I'd like to greet them but I didn't want to stay for the show, let's say seven nights a week. So I would greet them and usher them in. And then I'd come for dinner and it was so nice to be there when it was quiet. And then I'd go back at the end and how'd you like it? That sort of time for me was a really lovely time to have dinner. I'm curious. I have to talk to Jordan about that, but I know there've been discussions about schedules. So yeah, I mean, that's definitely, I mean, that's changed now almost everything except for Wednesdays and Fridays now and Saturdays. The thing about blindness that's interesting, just to go back to that for a moment, is that the show is only 70 minutes, maybe 75 at the longest. And right now we're starting with two shows, three o'clock and seven, but we actually have the ability to do four shows a day. And if we can get to that, if there's a demand, and if we can get to that, it can actually be financially quite successful. Even with all the disinfecting that you'll have to do? Wow, that's great. Yeah. As long as we have 45 minutes in between each show, because we've been through this ritual now, you know, get the house staff up to speed. 45 minutes, we can sanitize all the headphones because we have a big thing that you put them in and they get sanitized. And we can do the sanitation of the seats. 
repackage the headphones because everyone gets them in a plastic bag so that they know that it's been clean and we can do it. We can do it. We, it would probably be like, we're not sure. It could be one, three, five, and seven. It could be uh, seven and nine. It, it depends on what well, we'll see, what people might want if they want at all. But we're starting with two. So I feel very uh, secure that we'll be able to sell two shows a night. Speaking along those lines, do you feel that there's going to be some sort of fundamental shift in the way that theater is presented after we open up, taking into account COVID and budget? Do you think that there might be more ex- experiential shows like blindness that sort of take into account more social distancing? Yes, yes. I think yes is the answer to that because I have a feeling that people will be more open to different kinds of storytelling. And I think, yes, I think the answer is there will be more experiential things. I mean, I think about Sleep No More, which was, you know, now years old already, but that's something that would have been fine now, is fine now because, you know, you walk through at your own pace. It's very easy to kind of not- You're wearing a mask. They provide you a mask. You're wearing a mask. You can put a, an N95 on, under it. It's that kind of theater. And there are so many people that love that kind of thing. And it's a hybrid of theater and experience. And I think maybe we will see more of those things happening. And the other beauty is that the flexible spaces can be available for that. And this is a sad thing, but might be a happy silver lining. A lot of the uh, real estate that's now empty might be able to be transformed to be used for performance spaces. A lot of new venues that you didn't anticipate having access to. Yes, I think that's going to happen. I think one of the great things about theater is the limitations of it, because you have to be creative to present it in a certain way. And I think that's what, you know, you're doing with blindness or what people might have to deal with opening up those, those limitations bolster creativity and get people thinking out of the box and out of the proscenium arch. Literally. I think that's right. I think that's right. Yeah. And I don't know. I'd be curious to see what shows actually come to Broadway in the next year and two, you know, and will we see things changed? I'm not sure. I mean, we know things that are already in the pipeline. We know what some of the things are able to come back, but it'd be interesting to just observe how they come back and what the changes are that are necessary, both for health and safety and just for creative thinking. We'll see as long as it comes back in any form, in any form, bring back the theater and and the whole sadness of the industry. I mean, when you really think about it, it just breaks your heart. You know, so many people have left New York. So many people are not going to be able to return to New York because, you know, it's such an uncertainty. And that just makes me really sad, really sad. But let's not end on a sad note. <laughs> no, no, we're no, going we... to end on a very positive note, actually. Okay, good. We have adapted the Proust questionnaire as adapted by James Lipton for the Actors Studio with our Joe Allen Orso spin to it. So we like to end it with a, a few quick questions. You know, first thing that comes to your mind. That's fun. Um, the first question is, where do you like to sit at Orso? I like to sit as you walk in the restaurant, the first table on the right, in a little bit of that corner by the bar. Table 13. I, I almost forgot the name the number of the table. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I don't know what number. That's table 13. I know. We're having to remind each other of what the table numbers are today. <laughs> um. Well, that's my first choice. My second choice is diagonally across at the other corner table before you go down the steps. I like a corner. Table three. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Well, I did have a career as an interior designer before I started theater. Um, oh. I, yes, I did office design, mostly doctor's offices, as a matter of fact. I was sort of known for pediatrician's office. 
offices because I I sort of had invented this way of making the waiting room feel like a playroom. Um, I did that when I lived in New Jersey, which is where I raised my kids. Where in New Jersey? I grew up myself in Wayne, and I lived in Ridgewood when I when Amanda and Jordan were young. Okay. Why are you from Jersey? I'm in. I'm in. I'm not from there, but I live in uh, Fanwood Scotch Plains. Oh, that's beautiful. That's a beautiful area. Yeah, I'm a Jersey girl. I'm a Jersey girl. Love it. Uh, so, but I didn't answer the question because I wouldn't want to go back to that. Okay. <laughs> no, that's not. <laughs> you don't want to do that. Okay. What would you want to do? That was such a service industry. Oh my God. Um, what would I like to do? I often thought about. I, I don't know. This is sort of crazy. I often thought about being a writer, but I never wrote. And I never actually pursued it. But maybe if I were to wake up in another life, I would try it. Um, do you prefer pre-theater or post-theater for dining? Well, both, really. If it's too late, like if I'm going to a show and it's not over till 10, I'm home. That's too late for me. So I like them both, depending on the timing. With a seven o'clock curtain, you could do post. Seven o'clock <laughs> curtain, I could, eat, I could eat after. Yes. What live performance that you've seen floored you the most? Angels in America. Hmm. Yeah. And then you did the beautiful revival. My regret is that I didn't do the original, hmm. but I was new. I was new in my career and I, I didn't have that confidence we spoke about to raise my hand and join the people that were doing it. I wished I had, but I caught it up on the second round. Yeah. And they were both amazing. So stunning. Yeah. Marianne Elliott is a magnificent director and I can't wait for company to come back. That's one of the ones I'm excited about. Yeah. What's your favorite dish at Orso? Oh, that's a good one. Well, I used to like to eat all the vegetables on one plate, like whatever the vegetables were. I would say, could you just put them on one plate, please? Because I am a vegetarian, but I'll tell you something funny. Before I became a vegetarian, which is, I don't know, 18 years now, I used to love the liver. Mm. <laughs> we get that a lot. But that's long gone. And fan favorite. Yeah, but that's long gone. Actually, we get the we get the vegetable plate and the liver a lot. Yeah. Not usually from the same person, but I like that. <laughs> tells you how old I am. <laughs> if you're comfortable with it, and only if you're comfortable with it, what is your favorite curse word? This is Proust's thing he likes to ask. Fuck. Thank you. That's what a lot of people say. Classic. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> and lastly, pick one word to describe how you feel about Orso, the establishment. How I feel about it. I feel welcome. Lovely. Perfect. So good. This was fun. Well, thank you so much, Daryl. <laughs> thank was... you so much. Oh my God. It's so nice to see you all too. Could I just say that? It's nice to see you it's too. So good to see you. When can I come back and eat? Well, um... yeah. <laughs> what do you think? We don't get to make that call, but there's people. Hopefully, hopefully you're feeling about Broadway coming back in the fall. Then we can hopefully come back soon after that, right? <laughs> Hope so. Well, I think that's what has to happen. Yeah. I mean, the whole neighborhood has to come back at once. I agree. Yeah. So I hope that will happen. Yeah, we're talking, I think, uh, about sometime around summer, maybe. Oh, really? Uh, I don't. I don't want to put in, in some in some in some capacity. Maybe not all three places, but maybe baby steps. Yeah, but maybe dipping the toes in the water around that. We're you know we're we're gonna be talking about trying it soon. So we don't know. You're not doing outdoor dining though, right? You're not putting up the shed in the street or whatever. Oh, uh, we may. I mean, that street, I mean, that could just be, they could close it off. The city could close it off 
and it could be a festival of all the restaurants in the street. That's what they did in the fall, and, it, and for a, for a certain amount of time, it worked very well. Oh, really? I didn't I didn't go out during that period of time. Yeah, yeah. Joe's reopened for what six weeks, Jason? Seven weeks? Yeah, I think five weeks between uh, October and November. And uh, did it close because people got people were getting too sick or what? Uh, we closed for I think a couple of reasons. It's um, twenty five percent capacity. As a producer, I'm sure you know, you can't make it didn't work. Can't do 25% capacity. There's just no way to make that work. And, you know, the confidence level of people coming out was still kind of low. And it was getting cold too. <laughs> so there's that. Yeah, there were multiple reasons why, and then the, as the capacity inside is shut down, and then you can't do it outside. And it's like, yes. And we like to end everything on a little toast. That's our closing toast. So if you'd raise your glass, your cup, your, your coffee. Love it. So let's raise our glass to good friends, great nights at the theater, and cocktails at table seven. Cheers. 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 Thank, 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 thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's good to see you. Cocktails at Table 7 is produced by Jason Woodruff, Dana Mirlock, and Sean Kent, with theme music by James Rubio and logo design and artwork by Christina D'Angelo. Special thanks to the owners of Joe Allen, Orso, and Bar Centrale Restaurants.